Okay, well, we're in uh, this series looking at the book of James, and today we are in part three. And James, just uh, by way of catching you up, if you missed the last few weeks or reminding us if you have been here, uh, James is this very practical book of how we live our lives. And the backstory to this book, the kind of the background to how we get to why this letter was written in the first place, was that Jesus died and was resurrected back to life. And then he appeared to his disciples. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 1. He appeared to his disciples, and James, was in, who wrote this letter, was in that crowd. And in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, Go now, you my disciples, go now and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And this letter, uh, James, was written to the church that did just that. They went from Jerusalem and scattered and went to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. This is a letter written, really, to a church that changed the world. And the letter is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, instructing them how to live so that people would see their lives and believe the truth of the gospel. And the point of James is this this message that the witness of our lives opens the door to truth. That people might not necessarily understand what we call propositional truth, the truth of the gospel. But when they see it lived out in somebody's lives, they can't, life, they can't deny it. And this, James writes and says, this is then how you live. Live like this and people will notice. And the problem is we live in a, in a world, in a time where people want to define what it means to follow Jesus on our own terms. So yeah, I believe Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, but oh, no, not that bit of the Bible, no, don't really believe that, I'll actually live like this, or yeah, totally believe that Jesus is God, but, but really, I'll kind of make decisions like, like this, and based on that, and, and James, in his entire letter, just kind of points out the obvious, that if this is all true, then it needs to be on God's terms, or else it's a complete waste of time. If, if, if this is not true, then do what you want anyway. But if it is true, you can't say it's true, but I'll live like this. It's true, but I'll ignore that bit. It's totally true, except for all the bits I don't like, because he didn't really mean that. He meant this, and so I'll live like that. And James just points out the obvious, going, if you think that, don't bother you're deluding yourself. It's a waste of time. If it is true, live like it is, because then people will see and people will notice. And James, we looked at it last week. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Don't just be somebody who says, yes, I believe, and does nothing about it. Be a doer of the word. Don't just make it up, live it out. But here, as we're about to see, James says, you're doing. Ooh. Here we go. Is this going to work? One, two. I'm going to have to go with that one. One, two. There we go. Don't just be a hearer, do you do a, excuse me, one second. Thank you very much. Okay, James says, uh, James says, there's no point just doing if you're not doing what Jesus says. And so we need to do not just what we want, just doing something, but do what Jesus actually says, what God requires of us, otherwise we're just deluded. So we're going to finish off the uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and we'll go through into chapter 2, the first few verses of that as well. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is 
worthless. Just a helpful moment to just pause for a moment and say, you know that thing that people say sometimes, and I've said it, and I'm sure you've probably said it, Christianity is not a religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. Yes, it is. Absolutely, it is. That's completely true. But when James uses the term religion, he's talking about genuine faith. He's not talking about cold, dead rule following. He's saying if you genuinely understand the gospel, it transforms how you live. So don't get sidetracked by the religion thing. It's how you actually live. If this is real, if Jesus is real, if he's the Lord of your life, if you have submitted your life to, the, to this gospel truth, then it changes. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's surely some of the, if you're a Christian here today, surely some of the hardest hitting and most uncomfortable words. And there is such a temptation at this point just to move quickly on into chapter two and go, well, yeah, 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 that's for other people and we'll move on. I just want to pause for a moment here. Because James is saying, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. But don't deceive yourself with, with false religious doings. It's completely possible, James says, to do certain things and to act in a certain way and to behave in a certain way that makes it look like and sound like you are a Christian. You might, other people might look at you and think that, that you are. You might even look at yourself and think that you are. And James says, actually, there is a strong danger that you might not be. You see, we, there is completely possible in different ways to look and act and sound and behave like a Christian when really you're actually probably not. One of the areas is of, that, ha that happens all the time is in words, how we speak. See, my wife, she mocks me all the time for how I, not just all the time, <laughs> but she, she mo I shouldn't have paused there. She mocks me all the time for the fact that I change my accent, how I sound, how I speak, depending upon who I spend time with. The guys in the office do the same. If I'm talking about the North and rugby league, I become a whole lot more Northern. I start talking, you're right, like, like, I don't. But they all start mocking me for how I teach. Who I'm hanging around with and what I'm talking about changes my accent. It changes the way I sound. I talk to my mom, I sound more Northern. I talk to my brother, I sound more cross. It's just the way it kind of goes. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's very easy around church to do exactly the same. Hang around church long enough, hang around Christians long enough, and you start speaking that special Christian language called Christianese, and you start using words and language that you never use ever, ever, and bless you, brother, blessings at the end of your emails. You start saying things like, hey, it was fellowship time. Like, who uses that language? But it's really very possible to hang around church and Christians and start talking the talk without actually having been changed. Exactly the same with behavior. We begin to assume practices and behavior. We slowly begin to change. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We should change the way we speak when we become Christians. And we do change the way we act when we become Christians. But we can just slide into it and just assimilate the behavior of those around us. We even do it in worship. You can come on Sundays. You can carry your Bible. You can do and say the right things. You can maybe even raise your hands in worship. I mean, admittedly, you probably only go that high. Not You won't get too carried away just yet. But you can do all of that. And James says, you, you're in, you can be in danger of deceiving yourself. That God's happy with you because you're, oh. you're a Christian because you're saying the right words, doing the right stuff. And James says, this is a real danger. 
It says, in fact, we're in danger of deluding ourselves. And these few two verses here just give us these three marks of what he calls acceptable religion, of, of Christianity that is pleasing to God. He says, if you understand the gospel, it transforms the way you live. And the first way it transforms or how you live is it transforms how you control your tongue. We're going to unpack this in chapter 3 because James does in a few weeks' time. But he says here, bridle the tongue. Bridle is the imagery of horses, right? The whole thing of the bridle is the reins and stuff that you put on a horse, the bit you put in his mouth. When I was a kid, because we lived up in Yorkshire and on the moors for a little while, my sister had a horse. And when she first got her first horse, we went out as a family and she was riding it and, and practicing her riding trot and all that, rising trot, sorry, and all of that kind of stuff. And some of you are like, what is he talking about? That's, that's a technical horse term, all right? Rising trot. I am very, very good at it. And uh, after my sister had had a go, it was time for me and my brother to have a go. And I, 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 was, I did the horsey etiquette thing of walking and rising trot. One, two, three, four. All that kind of like my brother gets on, and he's like, You are so lame. This is how you do it properly. He gets the whip and he's like, Yeah, smacks the thing, and obviously the horse just bolts and shoots off, galloping all the way along the moors. We're like, Wah! and go sprinting after him. I mean, the horse is quicker than we run, I mean, fast, but not that fast. And we're chasing this thing, and it disappears for miles. And we're like, Oh my goodness. And what felt like a lifetime, it was probably two minutes later, the horse comes trotting back, minus the rider. <laughs> And we keep walking, and there's my brother lying on the floor like, oh, that proper hurt, that did. He's not even, <laughs> that's not what he sounds like. <laughs> you don't get hold of the reins properly. You don't control the thing properly. It gallops off, and it's exactly the same imagery James uses here. How do you know if someone really is a Christian? Their tongues are not galloping off. There are people, James says, who consider themselves religious, consider themselves Christians, they're even very proper in, in their worship and everything else, but they have galloping tongues. And James says they're deluding themselves. In fact, verse 26, this person's religion is worthless. That's actually really a very scary statement. Like it's super sobering. An out-of-control tongue is an indicator of worthless religion. Wow. It's a constant playlist in our house. One of those ones that's just always on. And uh, it's, it's basically Seed's family worship thing. It's, it's, it's scripture set to song. And there's one song that is, just plays all the time. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mouth speaks. All right, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, the tongue what comes out will inevitably reveal what's on the inside. And what James is angling at here is not so much the obvious things like telling lies and all that kind of stuff, but that much more uncontrolled thing of being critical, of carping on, of being judgmental, of constantly complaining, of slandering actually others, of religious sin, as James would describe it. And he says it clearly and loudly, don't do it. The 18th century preacher, John Wesley, was once preaching and he noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her critical attitude. And all through the service, she sat and stared at his new tie with that glaring at him. And when the meeting ended, she came up to him and she said to him very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It is an offense to me. 
So John Wesley turned around, he said to, he asked if any of the ladies present had any, a pair of scissors in their purse. And when the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and he asked her to trim the streamers to her liking. And so she clipped them off near, near the collar. And when she'd done that, he said, are you sure they're all right now? Yes, they're much better. And he turned to her and he said, well, let me have those shears a moment. I'm, shouldn't, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a little bit of correction. Because I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It is too long. Please stick it out. I would like to take some of it off. <laughs> it's an offense. There was another moment when someone said to Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. And Wesley just turned around and said, that's one talent God wouldn't care one bit if you buried. James says, control the tongue. A controlled tongue is evidence of a transformed life. Second thing we see here, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The second mark of, of genuine faith is care for the poor. Orphans and widows were the most helpful, helpless people in Jewish society. Their affliction, literally their pressure coming from their, from their desperate need of food and clothing. And James uses them as, well, because frankly, widows and orphans are pretty much those in need today as well. But James uses them as an example, a representative of all who are in need. You see, God's heart, God's bias has always been towards the poor. And in an echo of what we can read about in Isaiah chapter 1, he says here, it doesn't matter how good your worship is. It doesn't matter how great you sing. It doesn't matter how outwardly wonderful your performance of worship towards him is. If there's no concern for the poor and there's no concern for the needy, then it's all empty. Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through. God's heart, God's concern is for the poor and it needs to be our concern too. You know, it, it thrills my heart that right across New Community, increasingly we've got social action, social justice, ministries, partnerships launching. It's, it's great, wonderful. Lots of people leading out on some really incredible things. But it's, it's actually not enough to go, well, I'm part of a church that cares for the poor. So thank you very much. That's my job done. So it's an attitude for each and every one of us. In our situation, our points of need, who are the needy, how do we serve them? How do we care? Third thing we see from these, verse 27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Tame the tongue, care for the poor and needy, have a clear separation from the ways of the world. Be unstained, be clean, be pure, be unpolluted from the world. In Isaiah the pro chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah laments that in his day that what is evil is now called good, and what is good is called evil, and what is light is darkness, and what is darkness is light. Wow, is there a better description of our day today. What is evil is called good, and what is good is called evil, and what is light is actually dark, and what is dark is actually... That's our day. We live in these times. What we consider normal, even as Christians, normal, a generation ago would have horrified Christians. A hundred years ago would have horrified society. We're just so used to it now. James is deadly serious. Don't be stained by the world. Don't pretend that you can have some of the world and some of Christ. You can't. You're all in one way or the other. You're all in with both feet on one, one foundation or the other. You can't be split. Don't be unstained by it. And see, the thing is, James, what he's trying to get at is it can be so very easy to become self-deceived by our religiosity. 
And he says, don't be deceived, but be a doer. But be a doer in ways that God calls you to be a doer. Control your tongue, care for the poor, be pure in how you live. And to be honest, this is really uncomfortable. Like it's straight up smack you in the face, oh, a hit in the stomach kind of uncomfortable. We are so used to and would much rather prefer the idea of a a gently wooing God who loves us, who just says, come to me. Now, God is love, and he does woo us, and he does call us, but we kind of end up with it with like almost like a twinkle of fairy dust and Jesus in some fairy wings saying, hey, come to me. I'll make all your problems go away. I'm just going to make your life a whole lot better for you because that's what it is to be a follower of me. No, it's not, says James. James says, live like this or else, you know what? It's actually pointless. Who are you kidding? Why are you even doing it? So that the people next to you think you're good. Well, that's going to work out well for you for a few years, but there was going to be a day coming where that ain't going to cut it. You stand before the Lord and you go, well, everyone around me thought I was really good. Uncomfortable, but it's true. And at this point, it's just probably good, before we move on, just to step back for a moment. And just consider a few foundational things that we've got to remember. Because I, I said this to you if you were here two weeks ago. There's some foundational things that you've got to remember all the way through. Or else it gets really, really uh, kind of in this book. And the first is this. Foundational truth, number one, is that God is good. All the time he's good. And every good and every perfect gift comes from heaven. He comes from him, the father of lights. His desire, this good God, is not to trip you up. His desire is not to catch you out. He's not there going, here's a whole load of rules. You're not going to be able to do it. And when you don't, I'm going to come and smite you. His desire for you is that you would walk in the fullness of life. His desire for you is that you would know a rich and deep and meaningful life. And everything good comes from him. And he's a good father. Remember that. So the second thing we need to remember then is that warnings, of which there are a lot in this book, warnings are actually invitations. Warnings are actually invitations. As an earthly dad, I've got three little kids, I warn my children all the time. But as I warn them, I'm actually inviting them into something else. I'm warning them not to flex my power, but to keep them safe. When I say, don't do that, it's because I want them to actually do this, because this is safer for them. This is better for them. When I say, don't behave like that, it's because actually that attitude is going to put off a whole load of other people from liking you, and you're going to have no friends, and you're going to have a very lonely miserable existence so be better in your attitude because people will land you like you and now we go I'm a flawed imperfect father right my motivations for for giving warnings to my children are so often flawed but they're still actually invitations to keep them safe he's a perfectly good father and his invitations to us are his warnings to us are actually invitations to walk in a fullest richest deepest possible life See, when you see a warning sign on the edge of a cliff that says, don't go to the edge because you're going to fall off, it's not so it can ruin your joy of falling off and smashing at the bottom, it's so you can enjoy the view by standing at the top and not falling into the sea. All the warnings from this good God are actually invitations to walk in something richer and deeper and fuller. Third thing we nearly need to remember, we really need to remember is this, we're about progress, not perfection. You see, here's the reality, all of us have gotten this wrong. All of us at one point or another have had a galloping tongue that has gone too far and done and said things that we think, and you, it comes out of your mouth and you go, ah, and you watch it galloping off thinking, I wish I could pull that back and you can't, it's too late. Every single one of us has done said stuff that we shouldn't have said. 
Every single one of us has not cared for the poor in the way we should. Every single one of us is self-centered at heart and gets it wrong and doesn't always do what we should. And every single one of us has been stained in some way, shape or form by things of the world. None of us is perfect. None of us has got this all nailed down. We've all sinned and it does not mean that we are worthless or not saved. In fact, even if we did all those things perfectly, they would not save us. We'll hit this next week, but we're saved by grace through faith alone. But the second that we're saved, we begin to see the world differently. We're not perfect, but we're now making progress. You see, there's a desire now to control the tongue. There's a recognition that just constantly saying this and doing that and biting and carving yak, 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 yak at people is, is not particularly pleasant and it's not what we have, want to do. There's a desire for us now to care for the poor. We, we see news and we think, actually, that has to stop. I want to do something about that. What can I do about that? There is a desire in us to be pure. We're not perfect, but we're making progress in it. Matthew 12, that bit where it's, I just referenced a few moments ago, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just before it, Jesus says that a good tree will produce good fruit and a bad tree will produce bad fruit. If you think about that image, a good tree, you're a, if you're a Christian, you're a good tree. You're designed to, to produce fruit. But think about it for a moment. It takes time to bear fruit. If I look at a tree right here, right now, if there's a tree just here and go, there's no fruit on it, I don't immediately go, oh, it's dead. I come back to it again, maybe tomorrow. No, doesn't seem to have done anything. Maybe the next day, doesn't seem to have done anything. If I leave it time, a few weeks, I start to see it growing and shoots and buds. And then in a few months' time, there'll be a piece of fruit. I think, okay, that's good. Come back to it in a few years' time, and it's beginning to bear much more fruit. And it goes through seasons and all the rest of it. It's exactly the same with your life. I don't bear any fruit. Hey, this takes time. This takes a while. And we, it's about not seeing like a massive, oh, I've just become a Christian. Now look at all this fruit I produce. Actually, it's, it's about progression. We're not perfect, but it's about progression. We've got to remember these things. God's good. Everything good comes from him. His warnings to us are actually invitations because he wants us to walk in a fuller, richer, deeper life. And we're about progress, not perfection. None of us are perfect. We're all growing in this. Let's carry on reading. Chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
from saying in the end of chapter 1 in verse 27, be, be unstained, be different from the world, James immediately gives us an example. And he uses such an extreme example of a rich person within fine regalia walking in and a poor person that no one, no one is this and that thinking, actually, that sounds like a good idea. Sorry, poor person. You go over there and rich person, come here. I want to hang out with you. It's like an example that's so extreme, everyone goes, well, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't actually do that. But James pushes a little bit deeper. Because let's be honest, we do that all the time. Like maybe not in the extreme way, but who are all the people that we hang out with? Like pretty much most of us, most of the time, it's people who are like us. And we can hold dear in our hearts a picture of, of Revelation 5, Revelation 7, of a, a great tribe from that no one can number, from every tribe, every tongue, every nationality, every race. And, and praise God, we're growing in that. But if it, all it ever does is result in different colored faces in the same room on a Sunday, and then the rest of the time we're back off to the people that we just like us, we're not really treasuring the picture that we see presented in Christ. You see... James is pushing deeper here. This is not just about showing favoritism. It's also about holding in our hearts an element of judgment, how we view people from a different race, from a different socioeconomic background, from a different educational background, from a different class background, who are different from us age-wise, how they dress, what job we have, even, to be honest, what people look like. And James says, don't do it. It says, authentic faith, real, genuine Christian community has no favorites, so don't do it. And of course, James could just say, don't do it, full stop, that's it. I don't have to give you a reason. I mean, frankly, if he's saying what God is saying and Jesus is king, Jesus can actually just say whatever he wants. He doesn't have to give us an explanation for it. But James gives us then an explanation. He says, listen, don't show partiality, don't show favoritism, don't discriminate against people who are different from you, because if you do, he says, it's evidence that you haven't understood the gospel. You see, if you understand the gospel, if you, verse one here, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you understand this, if you understand this gospel, that this good news is not principally good news about you, it's principally good news about him who's the one who's the Lord of glory. And it becomes good news for you because he has stooped down to rescue you and save you, not because of your works, but because of his. If you understand that, you you then understand this gospel that you have been saved into a family. You've been saved into a new community, a people who display the glory of the Lord, who literally show and demonstrate and live out and display his character to a watching world. And if you understand the gospel, you understand that this family is not just about sharing a common name, but there's a closeness, there's a knitted togetherness of this new family. Verse 5, he says, my beloved brothers, this is family, not just a meeting and attend, it's family, not family that are all the same kind of well-to-do folk just like me, but family that is made up and drawn from people from every different walk of life and every different kind of status that we love to categorize people Why? You see, the the early church was drawn not from the wealthy or from the ruling classes, but those who, verse 5, are the poor in the world. James is not saying that it's only the poor who get saved, that rich people can't get saved. What he's saying is that social snobbery, looking at people based on the way the world looks at people, is so short-sighted and so superficial because this earth is so very short and everything that you acquire in this earth, you're going to leave it all behind anyway. So if you're going to be socially snobby towards people... You're just, it's pointless. 
And he says, if you understand the gospel, you will get that. See, if you understand the gospel, you know that this family that we're part of is not drawn from the elite of the world. It's not made up of people who look the part. You see, partiality, favoritism, discrimination is looking and judging on the outward appearance. But we know God doesn't look at that. He doesn't care what your wardrobe looks like. God looks at the heart. That's not the way our world works, though, is it? I mean, straight up, our world does not look at that in any way, shape, or form and go, oh, that's all right. No, 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 it looks totally different. And yet time and time again in Scripture, we see stories of showing how Jesus does work. So Matthew 12, amazing story of, of, the, of the widow and her offering. And Jesus is sitting at the temple watching all these rich people coming and putting, making a show of putting their offering in and, and how much money. And the world looking, going, wow, how much have they got? How generous are they? And then this little widow walks in. And Jesus sees her. And just very quietly she goes. And she puts her two small coins. Made up a penny, that was it. And Jesus says, wow, look at her. And James says, verse 5, those who are poor in the eyes of the world are rich in faith. And they're the ones who are heirs of the kingdom. It's exactly why Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospels, it's actually, this is why it's hard for a rich person to enter heaven. Not because it's hard for a rich person to be saved. God saves and can save anybody, irrespective of, of wealth. But when you are rich in the things of this world, or if that's what you chase and give yourself to thinking, and that's what you place your value in, and that's what you think matters more than anything else, if you place your value in those things, your outward appearance, what you look like to others, matters more to you than anything else. What you look like matters more to you than anything else. How you appear to other people, how, what other people think of you matters more than anything else. It's too important to you. And therefore, Jesus says, it's really very hard to recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy. And Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What good is it to get everything this world has to offer and sacrifice the one thing that really does matter? The one thing that will last for eternity. You see, the way of the kingdom is so upside down to the way of the world. When you were a kid, when you were at school, PE lessons or in the playgrounds, you know that moment where it was like, line everybody up, the two best kids, they're going to pick the teams, and they go and pick the teams. And what, who do they pick? They pick the fastest. They pick the biggest. They pick the most skillful. They pick the toughest. They pick the ones who are really excellent at everything, and everyone else, oh, well, okay, we'll just have to have you. That ain't how God works. In fact, if what God is after, if he's after the best, if he's after the smartest, if he's after the most attractive and the most talented and the wealthiest, then look around this room because none of us are Christians. That ain't us. It ain't us. And if you're tempted to think, well, I actually think it is me. You might want to think again. And not just because I'm sorry to burst your bubble, you're not. But also because 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
It was not your awesomeness that got you saved. It was not your togetherness. It was not your skills. It was not your abilities. It 100% was not your good looks that got you in and got you saved. So to look at anybody else and to hold them to that criteria and to go, well, you've got to be as good as me. It's so short-sighted. It's so ridiculous. And it's so anti-gospel. It's outside of how God saves. It's not how he works. It's outside the mercy that he's shown to you. So the level of hypocrisy in your heart, when you look in the darkness that you're in, when you look at others and you think, I'm better than them, or the level of hypocrisy in our hearts when we look at people from different races or different backgrounds or the rest of it, and we kind of go, well, you need to be more like me. Who are you? It's, you think, what are you doing? This is so anti-gospel. Because Jesus looks upon us and goes, you're the one who rebelled. You're the one who sinned. You're the one who messed it all up. You're the one who wasn't perfect, and I still step down to save you and rescue you and redeem you and I'll do it for that person and that person and that person again so don't be judging no one so how do we live verse 12 we speak and we act we speak and we act as what as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty we live captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ with our eyes so full of him that when we see the world we see the world the way he sees the world we're so gripped we live so gripped by grace the mercy that he's shown us I don't deserve I could not earn so that transforms the way I view everything everything's a gift and I pour out my life as an offering to other to him and to other people we lived committed to fulfilling the royal law verse 8 to love God with all all of our heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We live recognizing that no one is perfect, that all have sinned, that rich or poor, the, gr the ground at the cross is level. It's not like, well, the rich people get it a bit easier or the poor people get it a bit easier. All have sinned. There ain't no major sin and minor sin. Sin is sin. We've all done it. None is perfect. We all need Jesus Christ as the savior of our lives, but we also live with the reality of an impending judgment. It's a day coming where we'll be held to account. You don't know my heart. I don't know yours, but God does. And we're going to be relentlessly and perfectly judged. And all non-believers, the Bible tells us, will be judged by the law, whether they've been perfect or not, and we condemn the term accordingly. But Paul reminds us in Romans 8, that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's taken that judgment. The judgment's in, actually. It's already over you. You're guilty, but he's taken the punishment. But that does not mean we're not going to be judged because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There's a sobering reality that we forget. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin issue dealt. But how you live your life, you're going to be held to account for it. And rewards and all that kind of stuff are done. How you live matters, brothers and sisters. It really does matter. It's not enough to say, I honor God with my lips. And then everything else is, well, I'm just doing my way, thanks. No, 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 no. We live here when we understand the gospel. Verse 13, gripped by the mercy of God. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs judgment. If we don't show mercy to others... We don't know Christ, but because we know Christ, because we know mercy in our lives, because we've tasted it and we've seen, we now live out our lives 
for his glory and his alone, fixated on and bothered by not what others think and others say, but what he declares and what he speaks over us and what he tells us to do. And he's a merciful God. We muck it up, we come back right to the throne of grace. Lord, I'm sorry I mucked it up. Forgive me. Wow, what a God who comes and forgives. We get our tongue go away with us. We can't do it. I'm sorry. He comes and he restores and he cleanses and he purifies. We come in judgment of others, critical and, oh God, no, I'm sorry. And he comes, mercy triumphs, judgment, and he says, you're forgiven. Now go and love them better. We show favoritism because we do. Well, here's the thing. We project godliness because we do. Hold it all together so everybody around me thinks I'm really smart. What's the point? Like straight up, what's the point? Why is projected godliness better than actual godliness? Well, I've been in this position for a long time and everyone will know that I've kind of been faking it for a few years. So I better carry on faking it for a few more years because, well, otherwise everyone will know I'm not really godly. <laughs> what's the point? Like straight up, what is the point of pretending to be something before a God who knows all and sees all and will judge all at the end of the time? We, bother, we care way too much what other people think at the expense of caring enough about the one who actually matters. 